good morning. Good to see you. Um, we, you know, my mom loves to tell the story. Everybody has the, the story that your parents tell about you as a kid that you're like, <sighs> right? But she, she loves to tell the story of me as, as a little kid. Uh, when I was about probably Graham's age, I, I have to ask her exactly how old. She'll text me in a minute and tell me, uh, and I'll be able to see probably. <clears throat> but um, <laughs> she likes to text. But she, um, she tells a story of when I was a little, little kid, about three years old, um, I, I had this standoff unlike all standoffs. You know, we all have standoffs with our toddlers, for those of you who've had toddlers. But I, I got fascinated with the VCR in our house. Um, a VCR, for anybody here under the age of like 25, it's this thing that you used to put movies into, and like video cassettes. They, they essentially looked like a, a bigger version of a cassette tape, right? A cassette tape was this thing that had music on it that you used to put into a, a Walkman. Um, it was better than a CD because it didn't skip when you were running. Nah, it's not even worth it. Why am I bothering? Right? <clears throat> it was a thing. It was like Blu-ray but worse, right? But the VCR tape, you know, you'd stick the tape in, and I, I love to put my hand in the VCR <clears throat> as a kid. I just thought it was fascinating. I wanted to see what was in there, and I would stick my hand in it and, like, wave around. And so my mom tells it this, that, you know, I put my hand in, and she would pull my hand out and give it like a, like, no, you know. And I would look at her and be like, you know, stick it in right back and with the defiant look that every toddler has. And, you know, this would go so long that, you know, within like a half an hour later, I'd be sobbing. Like, not because my mom was somehow violent and hit my hand real hard, but like progressively more. You can hit a hand really light, but if you do it like a thousand times, eventually, you know, it's red and, and I'm just like... You know, sobbing at the end of it, and I'm like, defiantly, like, <clears throat> like, you know, like, I will win this battle, and I wanted my hand in the VCR, because it, it's what I thought was cool, and I wanted it in there, and, you know, it's, it's funny, I, I, I did that out of this rebellion, and the point is that I was little, and I had no idea what the proper function of that VCR was. If I would have thought, or if I was older and wiser, I would have thought, you know, this thing plays really cool movies that I get to watch, and there's way cooler things I can do with it than just stick my hand in like, like an idiot. Right? I, could, I could watch Disney movies on there, and I could see all kinds of cool stuff, but I wouldn't learn that until much later in life. At that point, I just wanted to be rebellious. That's the stuff I learned when I got older. See, the VCR has this manual that comes with it that tells you how to use a VCR, and most of the appliances or things that we get today have manuals with it that tell us how they're used. How many of you violently are opposed to reading any manual to something you buy? <laughs> right? Like, if you have to use a manual, you shouldn't even, like, you're not worthy of even owning the thing. You should just be able to, how many of you do that with Ikea furniture? Now we're playing Russian roulette, right? You bring home Ikea furniture and you're like, forget the manual. I can figure out how to do this all by myself. Said no one ever, right? I always thought it'd be nice to start a professional business assembling Ikea furniture. I feel like I would make so much money that I could retire at like 40 if I did that because the amount of people that would not. Anyway, I'm going on a tangent. That's not worth it, right? But the manual told you how to use the VCR if only you would listen to it. I, in my youth and stupidity, just <clears throat> instead, right? I think that that's what happens when we use things the way that they weren't intended to be used. And, and in all reality, part of why my mom didn't want me to do that is it wasn't probably so much that there was a danger to me, although there probably could be something in there that hurts me. It was more just the, I want to preserve the function of this, of this VCR, right? Today, if you have a VCR, it's a paperweight in your house, right? But, but back then, 
it was a useful thing. And so it's, it's this unintended consequence when we use things the way that they're not meant to be used. Throughout Ecclesiastes, the preacher is trying to make the case that we are using our lives, that we are living our lives attached to things and doing things with the way that the world is and the way our lives are that aren't really how they're meant to be done. Right? And because of that, <clears throat> there's a potential that we aren't living up to. We're not getting to what he would call this, the meaningfulness of life. Right? And so everything he finds, all the ways that the world generally moves and has their being and the choices that they make and the ways they invest and the focuses they choose to, to place their hearts on are things that are not lasting. And so in the end, everything is meaningless. This word hevel, a vapor or a smoke, <clears throat> as we talked about at length during the first week of our Ecclesiastes sermon, right? It's like a vapor. Just when you think you can grab it, you can't. It just, it just doesn't. You can't quite get your finger on, on what life is really all about in this world. Because no matter what you pursue, you're somehow still stuck empty. Right? The suicide rate among those who are rich and those who are poor isn't really all that different. Right? Happiness doesn't come with the ultimate achievement of money and fame and career. As a matter of fact, it would suggest that people are way more miserable when they achieve it. A couple weeks ago, we don't really do this, but I don't know if you heard the news. The lottery hit like $1.9 billion, right? And so, like, you know, we, went, we went out and we bought a ticket because we're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, two bucks. We're going to do that. We, we, like, never buy lottery tickets, but $1.9 billion. Um, and I was reading articles about past people who have won, and one of the common threads you see is people that win the lottery, overwhelmingly, they are, they are miserable within about five to ten years of when they've won the lottery, Right? You'd think it would change your life for the better, and in some ways it does, but it doesn't seem to last. Right? And that's the argument that he makes. And so he starts and ends his arguments in, in chapters 1 through 12 the exact same way. Right? In the beginning, in chapter 1, he says, you know, hevel, hevel, everything's hevel, vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless, whatever translation of that phrase you want to use. And if we look at chapter 12, verse 8, it's the same phrase over and again. It says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And that's the last words that the preacher in, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes gives us, right? It, it, it stops, it stops his, his words there. And so he has this, it's what we call in the scripture an inclusio, where you start and end with the same idea, the same sentence, and all of the middle, the meat that we've been spending our time in, is, is the preacher unpacking the way in which life is meaningless, is vanity, is a smoke, a vapor, and so he, he looks at various things. We've looked at money being vanity, right? Not, there's nothing gained under the sun, and we can't take any of it with us. So no matter how much you make and achieve, it doesn't really help you in the end. You could lose it at any moment's notice too, right? Like tomorrow you could get hit by a bus, and then what's the point of your savings account? Or power is vanity. It's, it's vain. It's, it, it's all in vanity and meaninglessness to achieve power because it seems like no matter how much we achieve, we can't control the world. And no matter how much power goes to various different places, it seems like no matter what happens, it's the corrupt world anyway. And justice and this real idea of true justice is even something that is fleeting. Even life itself is meaningless as vanity because we all share in the same death. There's not a level of life that you can achieve where it just becomes you don't die. We all will die. That's the one certainty we will all face. Our lives may never be the same. 
No, none of our two lives may be the same, but we will share death. That's the thing you and I and everyone in this room has in common, right? And so life is, is itself is meaningless, both in the sense that we die and in the sense that it's this random chance. Anything could happen. So what, what's the point of being strong or wise or, or any of these things if life could just go any which way at any given time? And so by the time the preacher says the words vanity, vanity, all is vanity, at the end in chapter 12, verse 8, they take on kind of a heavier meaning, right? Because in the beginning, he goes, everything's meaningless. And you go, okay, tell me more. Well, then he tells you more, and then he repeats it again. And so you hear it, and you go, yeah, I guess, I guess everything is meaningless. We have to admit that the argument the preacher makes in Ecclesiastes is, is very thoroughly convincing. Because every one of you who has tried to find ultimate meaning and fulfillment in the things that Solomon talks about, that the preacher mentions, if, if you've tried it for long enough, you know that it's right. You know that that's not where happiness and joy and ultimate meaning are found. Sure, money can make you happy for a time. But you know it doesn't last. You have friends that are rich and miserable, that have way more than you, but man, there's a joy that you have that they can't seem to find. Right? We know these things are true. And so this argument, this, this, this evidence-trailed argument that Solomon lays out is something that we really can't deny. And so at the end when he says, yeah, everything's meaningless, we kind of have to go, oh, man, it is. And so the Ecclesiastes, the preacher, leaves us in a really dark place. Because if, I don't know about you, for me to sit at home and just think, oh, everything in life is meaningless. That's sad. What do I do with that? How is that a, a biblical message that is helpful to me somehow, <laughs> right? And, and it probably would be really sad and depressing if there weren't something tacked at the end. First off this, the preacher does give us some small sense of comfort throughout the book. All, all kind of spread throughout the various discussions of meaninglessness, the, the, Solomon makes these mentions of, of fleeting little moments. He's saying, so like, because life is meaningless, here's what you should do. You should enjoy the moments when they come, right? You should revel in the beauty of a sunny day and being outside in it. You should, you should find joy in that moment. Yes, it's fleeting. Yes, ultimately it doesn't mean anything because tomorrow that will be rainy and look like it does outside right now although it's sunny, but it's cold, right? Those, the cold days will come. But in the moment, enjoy. When you get the chance to have a cup of coffee or a, a shared meal with a really good friend that you maybe you haven't seen for a while and you're just laughing about things that you did in college or whatever, like revel in those moments and enjoy them. Hold on to them. It even tells us to, to throw ourselves into our work, our calling, and to revel and, and enjoy and find life and meaningfulness to some degree in that, even though it's not ultimate. So, so here's the challenge, though. Throughout Ecclesiastes, if we take those little moments as the only kind of advice and wisdom, we, we essentially have a Solomon who is advertising a life of YOLO. You only live once, right? That's a world phrase. That's not a biblical phrase. And so there has to be something just a little more than that. It can't just be life is meaningless, so when something tastes good, just go, hmm, and then be miserable again. There has to be more to it, and there is. See, the book doesn't end at 12, verse 8. The preacher's done talking, but the, the author, who we've only seen for one sentence so far, comes back in at the very end. Right? 
Right? We, we're easily maybe able to forget that Solomon didn't write the book of Ecclesiastes. The author is telling what Solomon, the preacher, has said. The author is the one writing these things. He's, he's quoting him, perhaps, perhaps even verbatim, but he's taking this wisdom of the preacher and putting it into written form for us to be able to hear the preacher's voice in a way, almost like when we quote somebody on a paper. But then at the end, he comes in and he adds his own two cents. And that's chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And so that's where we want to live this morning for a little bit and spend our time. So I want to invite us to stand and we'll read the author's thoughts on all of Solomon's words in the book of Ecclesiastes together. It's Ecclesiastes, let's, let's read 8 again just so that we have it ingrained in us. Uh, chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of a flesh. In the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's the word of the Lord. Take a seat. This whole epilogue, if you want to call it that, right? these like final thoughts of the author really surrounds the idea of, of two questions, and they are how and why, right? The whole book of Ecclesiastes is the meat. It answers the question, what? What does the preacher say to us? It's, it's the content, right? If you had like an intro, a main paragraph, and the conclusion, it's the main paragraph. What, what the author here is trying to answer is how and why. How does the preacher say and proclaim his wisdom to us? Like, how does he actually do it? What is the mechanisms and means and ways and stylistic kind of ideas and ways that he conveys this, this, this whole what to us? And then why does he tell us these things? Right? So we have the what. We spent four weeks in it. Today, the how and the why. Right? Let's, let's start with the how. The preacher, we're told tells us his wisdom and proclaims what we're supposed to know in a couple different ways. First, the preacher wrote methodically and with great amount of clarity. Right? What does it say? The words of the wise, sorry, besides being wise, the preacher taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And it's talking maybe about the book of Proverbs, but there's a lot of Proverbs inside of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of these nuggets of wisdom that are found. And what we're told is that Solomon weighed and studied and arranged with great care the things that he wanted to put into the book of Ecclesiastes. So this isn't the rambling of an old senile kind of wise sage, right? You picture a person on their deathbed saying, yeah, I tried that and it just didn't work. So here, you know, you know like all the platitudes and like things that you would find on a fortune cookie. It's not like Solomon just was like, all right, Hashtag random thoughts of King Solomon. No, he took the time. When we read Ecclesiastes, it's not a collection of randomness. It's a carefully, methodically organized thought 
that follows from beginning to end. He's trying to accomplish something. He's not just throwing wisdom nuggets at your face, right? He's, he's, he's arranging things very carefully. He took the time to evaluate all the wisdom that he had and all the things he could say, and he specifically chose to say the things he did say and to arrange them, to say them in the order in which he said them. So the structure of Ecclesiastes, the, the detailed content is all methodical, right? That's the author's first observation is, look, Solomon really took the time to like dig in and, and, and write this well. It's true, not just to Ecclesiastes, but of Proverbs and of all of Scripture as well. It's a methodical beginning-to-end grand story that is told from the first verse of Genesis until the last verse of Revelation. But here, especially of Ecclesiastes, that's true. The second how is that he he, he did it very artfully, beautifully and poetically. The, The author praises the preacher's way of speaking, right? The preacher sought to find words of delight. So he tried to say it in a way that is pleasing. I'm a, I'm a logic brain guy, right? That's the German in me. I'm not an art brain person. Like the fact that I can play guitar is, I point it to nothing, is very weird because in no other way am I artistic at all. I can't paint or squat. Don't ever make me run a craft with kids or on my own. Right? I can't do the kid crafts as well as most of the little kids can do the kid craft. Like if I came into children's church and I was trying to follow along, I'd be like, uh, I don't know. And Graham would probably be like done and I'd just be like, I'd have glue on my face somehow. Right? I'm, not, I'm not wired for that, but, but Solomon was. So Solomon's communicating in a way that's not just beautifully organized and meticulous the way the German would be proud of, but also artfully arranged and spoken. He speaks pleasing and beautiful language. Ecclesiastes is one of the most praised works of literature. People that could care less about Jesus will look at the book of Ecclesiastes and comment on how artfully it's it's written and how beautifully it's spoken and how many sayings that we use in the secular world that we get from it. Do yourself a favor. Go home today. Read the book of Ecclesiastes start to finish and just see how how many sayings that you can spot that non-Christians use all the time in the world. I guarantee you'll find at least eight. There's a lot in there. And so he has this art way for him. And then finally this. The preacher speaks and writes with honesty and with integrity. What's it say? He sought to find words of the delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So Solomon is writing things that are true and filled with integrity. He's not just trying to make you feel crummy. The goal of Ecclesiastes is just to tell you the truth. It's a person who has had the opportunity to find meaning in everything. It's a guy who was wealthier than any of us, who had more than any of us, who could pursue every pleasure on earth that he wanted to find. And and he's saying, look, I'm not trying to to tell you how to do life necessarily. I'm just... I have chances to pursue things that you'll never even have the chance to pursue. Like, if you think you can find joy in money, I'm telling you, no one's ever been as rich as me. It it doesn't happen. I'm just telling it like it is. Even when it's uncomfortable, we, we, we can know and trust that Solomon, that the preacher, speaks truth to us. You might not like it, but it's true, and it's good, and it's upright, and it's honest, The book of Ecclesiastes is written by a preacher filled with integrity. 
the way that it's arranged is purposeful, beautiful, and honest and true. So that's the how. How does he write to us with all of these attributes? Next, the why. And we have to go to verse 11 for that. The author takes a step back and he's, he points out all these beautiful ways about how the preacher communicates and then he moves to why. And he says these random things kind of come up that don't seem to make sense. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings and they are given by one shepherd. What do we mean by that? First, what are goads? Well, is it like the greatest of all days? Instead of the goat? No. Goads were these shepherd staffs that they would have. And here's a couple examples of what they might have looked like. And they would use it be a tool that the shepherd would use. Shepherd or you know, the cattle herder or whatever, whether it's cows or sheep or pigs or whatever animals they had. They would use these things to prod at the animals. And the goal wasn't to, to cause harm. They weren't trying to injure anything, anybody. But the goal was that they would prod just hard enough to make the animal move in the direction that that the shepherd needed in the go. Right? We literally apply the, the minimum amount of force necessary to get the movement going. Right? And so did that maybe hurt a sheep a little bit at times? Yeah, absolutely. Did it cause real significant harm or injury? No. Right? It, it looks like something that you would use to like spear open an animal, but that's not the point. It's just kind of a pointy stick to say, like, get. Right? And it would cause the, the herd to move in the direction that it needed to move in order to be on the right path to safety and to goodness. And just like that, the preacher's words, the first why, why did Solomon write all of this to us? Why are we wasting five weeks on it? Right? Because it's like a goad. The words of this book are supposed to just like just sting us enough to shove us in the right direction, to get us back on the right path, right? to stop us from veering off to where we shouldn't be to where meaninglessness and hevel reside, right? It's supposed to shape us and mold us. And yeah, like a goad, sometimes it's, it kind of hurts while it's doing it, right? It's just the way it works. The second is that it's, it's nails, this nail metaphor, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And, and nails, the, the point of this is that nails are like an anchor, right? And so Solomon's point of speaking to us is, is the words of wisdom that he provides to us are meant to anchor us down, to, to set us kind of in, in the spot where we're supposed to be. He goads us into the position that we're supposed to be, and then he, and then he kind of firmly keeps us there. Right? That's the point. If we, if we can get behind the words of Ecclesiastes and decipher and understand where we're supposed to go, then, then it's, like, it's like nails that hold us down, like a tent stake in the midst of a storm that stops the tent from blowing any which way. That's, that's the point. So the preacher's words to us are meant to anchor us in a world of chaos, of violence, of contrasting opinions, political or otherwise. The preacher's message is supposed to ground us, right? to keep us in the right spot, to nail us down so that in the storm of life, we don't just blow away and wither. Right? That's why he writes to us the book of Ecclesiastes. And then finally, it's given by one shepherd, saying, look, all of this collective wisdom, like the source is all the same, right? Solomon's works cited page is really short if he were to provide one, 
Right? And this one shepherd is, is, is language in the Old Testament that is used exclusively for God, right? The one shepherd. It talks about shepherds all through Scripture, but the one shepherd is this, you, you see it all throughout the Old Testament used to describe the God, the creator of the universe. And so he's saying, look, all of this stuff was written to, to prod you, to anchor you. And by the way, it all came just from one source. All of this wisdom is godly wisdom. It's not happy collective thoughts of Solomon on life. Right? It's not Solomon's chicken soup for the soul. Right? It's the words of God himself. It's, it's, it's divinely appointed wisdom to us. That's the point. So how does he give it to us? Methodically, beautifully, honestly. Why does he give it to us? To point us, to anchor us, and to, put, and to convey the, the wisdom of the divine creator who made us. Right? That's, that's why he does it. And so then verse 12 goes on to warn us about some of the other wisdom of the world. This is kind of the pure thoughts of the author at the end, right? My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. On average in the world, about a million books are written a year. If you wanted to read all the books that were written just this year, it would, and you started when you could first read, it would, you, you would never finish before you die just this year. Saying, look, there is going to be no end to worldly wisdom that is spewed out over the ages. It's going to keep coming. Like, you're going to have to make a choice to be picky about what wisdom and what advice you allow to come into your world, that you allow to be absorbed. Because, listen, if you want to find all the world's wisdom, and there's people that do that. They go out and they, they, want, they go out to the Eastern religions and they seek that wisdom. And then they go, you know, they go to this place and that place and they, they check out all the different faiths because, well, there's nuggets everywhere, right? What he's saying is you can do that, but there's no point, number one. And number two, you'll never finish. Like, worldly wisdom is, is endless. It's everywhere. None of it's useful to you, but it's everywhere. And you'll exhaust yourself trying to find the answers there because you're never going to read it all. You're always going to wonder, well, there's that one thing I didn't get to. What does it say? Right? And so he says, look, beware of anything beyond these. Of making of many books, there's no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh. Right? It'll wear you out and exhaust you. And in the end of the matter, all has been heard. This is a beautiful kind of way to end this book. The conclusion, he simply says this. Everything's been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We literally read the entire book to get to this one little verse in 13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. How can we do that? How can we just, just abandon all these pursuits of meaning and just, like, am I really not supposed to think about what any of life means? Am I just, no, yeah, you're not. What you do is you anchor yourself in the wisdom of Solomon, of the preacher, and you just fear God and keep his commands. And why should we do that? Why do we fear God and keep his commands? Because he is going to be the one that, that brings everything in the judgment and proper order at the end. Even the secret things, the good and the evil, right? The Lord is the one who's going to cover it, right? The preacher is right that everything under the sun is hevel, meaningless. But the, the truth is that you and I, as Christians, 
aren't meant to live under the sun, S-U-N, but to live under the sun, S-O-N. And under the S-O-N sun, everything has meaning. The Lord is the one who gives meaning to life. When he, the creator who made everything, brings everything into order and arranges it, and we anchor ourselves to him, that's where meaning is found. If you pursue anything else in this life, you will come up empty. You will come up wanting more. You will come up dissatisfied. It is the only place that you will find meaning. And so what do we do in the mess of the world, in the confusion of the world, in the times when we don't have answers because everything is just chaos all the time, in the times where we can seem to take one step forward and then three steps back, we grab a hold of the one who can guide us through and onto what comes next. Right? Maybe Carrie Underwood was onto something when she said, Jesus, take the wheel. Right? She didn't know it. She was a pretty intense theologian in that moment. I guarantee you that was entirely by accident, right? In, um, you've probably heard this story before, but in South America, uh, you know, they, they, they looked at the, the tribes uh, that lived in, in, in the wilderness, and they devised this way to capture monkeys. And what they would do is they would create some kind of a, a small opening in something, right? And they would put treats inside, and the opening was created was just large enough for the hand of the monkey to fit through. Right? And so the monkey would come and stick his hand in and, and grab the treat, but then with the treat in its hand, it couldn't get it out. Right? And, and what they found is that most of the time, the monkeys could just be, be, be nabbed because they would refuse to let go of the food inside. Right? All they'd have to do is let go and run, and they were free, but they wouldn't. They would hold on because they, they were so entrenched in the thing that they were grabbing that, it, that they, they gave their freedom up for a small little treat of some kind. And so they would just easily catch these monkeys, right? I think in a lot of ways, our, our lives are, are kind of like that sometimes. When we look at the hevel of this world, we grasp at the world for dear life. We hold on to anything we think will bring us joy or significance and meaning. And, and to, to get to the meaning, to get to the joy, we got to let go of those things. And our hand can come out of the trap and the Lord can move us to where he wants us to go. But most of us are just so consumed with this thing, we just can't let go of it. And so we just stand there in the trap. But I need financial security. Why? Because God doesn't have you somehow in his hand? Really? You really think that the Lord can't protect you without your IRA? Really? Now, am I saying you should be frivolous with your money? No, there's wisdom in, in, in savings storing up. You're not a sinner if you have a 401k, but, but just... It's the grasping and the holding on. If that's where you feel the security of life, I got news for you. The stock market could tank tomorrow. We've seen it happen before in our lifetime. Right? Anybody remember back just a little over a decade ago? Right? People had this financial future. How many people looking to retire in 2007 or 8 woke up to a really grim reality of I all of a sudden don't have enough like I thought I did? It's fleeting. The things of the world are fleeting. And you're like a monkey in a trap if you refuse to let go. But yet God invites us instead into a place where the hevel has been lifted, where the fog is cleared, and we can see if only we would let go of the things that stop us from getting there. It's where he wants to take us. Instead, what we do is we ignore the glory of God and what he offers to us. 
And we grasp at the smoke instead. The book of Romans puts it this way. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here it is, worshipped and served the creature, the created, rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. We do that every day of our life as sinners in this world. We clutch to the stuff that doesn't have any meaning. And no matter how much we know by reading our Bibles that it's, that it's true, we, we somehow just, there's things we can't let go of. Right? We, just, we just can't. When we read Ecclesiastes, it's not this feel-good book. It can leave you really, feeling really sad and empty inside. But here's the beautiful thing. Ecclesiastes and your reaction to it is almost like a barometer of life. The more saddened you feel and weighed down you feel when you read Ecclesiastes, the more likely it is that you're holding on to things in this life that, that you shouldn't be. Right? I know a couple people, and they're rare, believe me, I'm not one of them. I struggle with holding on to my, my own things. But I know a couple people that I've met over the years that would read the book of Ecclesiastes and find nothing but pure joy in it because they've somehow cracked the secret sauce. They've figured out that holding on to stuff in the world just doesn't do it. And I tell you, those are the people that have so much joy in their hearts that I would die to be like them. Right? But they're so rare. So if you take nothing else away from this book, over the last five weeks, take this. You can pursue things, but the creator of the universe guarantees you that they won't last. He guarantees it. They won't last forever, and you have no idea how long they'll last on this earth. So grasp that which lasts eternally. Fear God and obey his commandments. And if you grab hold of the one thing that has meaning, and you let it drag you along for the beautiful ride, you'll come out on the other side. Right? And you'll look back, and I can guarantee you, you will have no regrets. Might be hard along the way. You might wonder what God is up to. You might not understand the path he's taking you on. You might not understand which way he's goading you. But I can guarantee you, when you get done, and you look back on this life, while you're spending eternity with your Savior, you will have no regrets. Let go of the treat and run towards the one who gives meaning, who lifts the hevel. Let's pray. God, we, man, we want to grasp at smoke so bad because it looks so cool and fulfilling. We really have bought into the lives of this world with so much more than our minds, but with our hearts as well. And it's so hard to somehow actually believe that you'll come through, that there is full meaning and, and purpose and joy to be found only in you. That is such a hard truth to grasp, Lord. We thank you for, for writings, for books like Ecclesiastes that, that Ecclesiastes that teach us this truth. But Lord, we, more than anything, we need your spirit to inhabit our hearts. Because our hearts can't believe this without you. 
Our hearts can't turn without you. Our hearts can't let go of the treat and the trap without you. And we need you to shape us. And Lord, you promise us that you do. And so we invite you and your Holy Spirit into this place and into our hearts and minds so that we might be shaped and transformed. That our lives might pursue a higher meaning that is only found in you, even when we don't understand what it means, Lord, that we long for that day when we stand in front of you and you can say, good and faithful servant, and we will see that it was all worth it. And so, Lord, we ask that you might enable us and empower us to run the race with our eyes on the prize. Because we can't find it anywhere else. We love you and we praise you. And all of God's people said, Amen.